Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ed's Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today is an accomplished technology executive and business head who's held multiple leadership responsibilities across both product and service organizations in multiple countries. He has had over 20 years experience focusing on creating innovative next generation enterprise solutions and forging strategic partnerships. We're going to talk a lot about AI and analytics, data management and customer experience. It's going to be a very interesting episode of Ed's Talk today and we will continue right after our sponsors' messages. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Ed's Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Vikas Kumar is Cognizant's Global Head of Alliance and Strategic Partnerships. He heads Cognizant's Digital Business, Artificial Intelligence, and Analytics Business Unit, where he drives revenue growth and market share for 1.2 billion plus. Vikas has worked across the globe in leadership positions to include the US, where he is currently based. He has also worked in the Netherlands, London, Luxembourg, India, Belgium, to name a few. The common theme running through all of this is Vic's expertise in solution architecture, enterprise architecture, cloud computing, business intelligence, profit and loss management, data management, and customer experience. To add to some of Vic's skills and achievements, he has written and published a number of white papers on the topic of BIDW, CRM, and ERP. He was a research and development scientist and architect in Barn ERP Systems and he is well recognized as a global industry speaker and thought leader in analytics, data management and cloud engineering community. I have listened to some of Vic's speeches and contributions to debate. And frankly, I could listen to him all day. You will see what I mean in the course of this episode. He's got a knack of making you pay attention to what he's got to say. I can confidently say that Vic is your man to explain all things data. So we really are thrilled to have him here on Ed's Talk today. Vic, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aline, and thanks for having me. And thanks for all the nice words. <laughs> okay, um, you are a passionate speaker and, and enjoy talking about your subject area of expertise. So once again, thank you for sparing the time um, for us on Ed's Talk. Let's get right into it. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, you are the Global Head and, uh, of Alliance and Strategic Partnerships at Cognizant. You head the business unit that house AI and analytics. Talk me through the changes in the types of collaborations, partnerships, or alliances you are seeing as a result of COVID, digitalization, and both. What has differed from the old normal and what excites you? What do you see as success factors and what can help partnerships flourish in the new normal? Surely. That's a, a very interesting topic and a topic which is very close to my heart. So with the 
with the covid era and what uh, has been forced upon us uh, mm. all the partnerships which used to be much more physical so partnership was more around wining and dining in the past uh, i would say the mm. decade or so mm. people used to actually meet in person discuss strategies and then go about and implementing them however with uh, covid and no travel there has mm. been all the sales folks of most of the technology verticals as well as all the isvs or say for example the, even the sis and gsis the people who are pure play sales now they can't any longer travel or go and meet the clients in person and that has changed the way and the nature in which we start up collaboration or when we actually go to a partnership or joint go to market right so it has brought about many changes it has brought about uh enhancement in multiple smaller partnerships which did not have the the power in the old era but now because of digital everyone has got the same level playing field so mm-hmm. all events are virtual so you don't need to go and have a event where you are meeting 45000 people or 40000 people like some of the mega industry events which are happening so mm-hmm. i would say with digitization and covid forcing the hand most of the collaborations are now virtual and i see impact in at least three or four major areas mm-hmm. so the most important would be market share or wallet share the second would be mind share or brand image uh, the third would be around joint go to market and solutioning and fourth would be in the area of capability building enablement training certifications and now with the virtual world be with the advancements of technology all of this are being done virtually and most of the partnerships are now even being triangulated or triparty agreements where say for example you take a cloud provider you take a data ingestion provider you take an analytics provider and you take a ai ml provider and then you go to a client and then there's a si or a gsi like cognizant who's going and implementing this with the help of three or four different technology vendors so collaboration has increased a lot the old normal used to be a lot of time taken when people used to sit together and finalize and sometimes months went nowadays everything is very quick and you can't now anyway say oh i'm traveling and i can't make this meeting now you have to be there because okay fine you can't do it now you do it after 5 hours mm-hmm. so it has increased the pace at which we collaborate and the wallet share has really increased so but we in cognancy as of now more than 25 to 30% of our overall pipeline or deals via partnership ecosystem so joint selling or co-selling reselling uh, oems uh, white labeling of solutions are becoming very paramount and and i would say that the partnership flourishes in the new normal because if you have the trust uh the transparency between the partnerships that you have and if you are open to suggestions right because not every time everything works for everyone right not not all one size fit all now if you are open and being transparent and honest in your relationships then you make sure that you will flourish because you are not trying to take someone for a ride you are very upfront making clear that in this account i am working with this partner right and but then you reciprocate and do something else with the other partner in the other account so you make sure there is a balancing act happening that's one parameter and the other would be i would say the account executives and the sales folks from both the partnership side so from the si side or gsi side from the var side or the isv side should meet often should meet regularly and should always do joint account planning don't wait for a deal or a rfp to come to you 
if you're actually planning in advance what your client needs are, if you're putting your client in the center of everything that you do, then you would be able to plan better and add joint value to your customers. So that would be, I would say, the, the new normal where people come together and try to help out the client and do it fast and do it regularly. Mm. I think that's good. And I think um, what you're saying, with collaboration comes transformation. And I like the, the, the bit when you talked about the inclusion of clients with all the decision process. But before we get into um, great detail about the technical aspects of transformation or digital transformation, let's look at the people side of things. Um, this question always fascinates me when we talk about digital transformation and change. It's not just a case of changing processes or equipments used. Um, there is a, an, a human angle to, to address. So how should an organization run its people culture change in parallel to digital transformation? So as not to have the, a sense of this being done to them. And how do leads in digital transformation avoid or mitigate against this? And I think you kind of touched upon this and when you said bringing the clients in to the whole decision process, but please Vic, elaborate on that for me. Sure, absolutely. So as you rightly said, Ali, uh, most of the times it should not be as if it is being forced on the end client, the change, right? So change management is very important. We, we need to make sure that the business teams, the IT teams of the client on which the digital transformation journey has been undertaken or is embarking on that journey mm -hmm. is very in line with the aspirations of the business. What I have seen and what I feel makes the, uh, the difference between actually pushing it down or shoving it down versus someone happily adopting it, right? It takes changes is, is a fact of life change happens right and people who don't change get uberized uh, and and move move on or get obsolete there are multiple examples of many companies who did not embark on the change at the right point of time and uh, are no longer in the fortune 500 or don't even exist mm. now mm. so the main point is finding the balance between the it departments the business departments and it having the the humility to acknowledge that they are there to help the business and not to build an empire and create a gateway unless it's absolutely necessary. Most of the times when a digital transformation or change is happening, people feel it should be led by the IT. But in my opinion, it should be a joint collaboration between the IT and the business coming together and working together. Yeah. IT should try to enable the, the, the customer side or the business side as a DIY journey, right? with focus on self-service. That makes it so much easier on the overall organization because I would say the, the tension or the rift between the, the, the both the departments decreases a lot if you make sure that you have an inclusion of your business side as well as the IT side. And then the role of the CIO, the CDO, they all have evolved so much that they can't sit on their own silos and say, oh, uh, go ahead and do this, right? Because it has to be a top-down as well as a bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. So people on the IT departments and business departments and doing what they have to do from bottoms up, but then the executives of the company, they have to make sure that the mandate, the focus, the drive is happening from very, very top. Most of the companies who go on a cloud adoption or a cloud journey, mm -hmm. what happens is that there are hundreds and thousands of applications. If a company is 150 or 200 year old, like a banking uh, company or an insurance company, or say, for example, a drug research or a pharmaceutical company, they have a plethora of systems. And now if you want to migrate everything from on-prem to cloud, that means things will be shaken up. There'll be multiple applications which will be decommissioned. People will be in the fear that is my skill set obsolete? Yeah. Will, I, will I be let go? 
And that's the, the point where the execs and the top management come and say, no, we will reskill you. And we'll make sure that your skill set is what is needed in the future. Mm-hmm. We'll make sure that the application rationalization when it is happening, you are the people who come in and bring your value add and knowledge, which you have acquired over like 20 of years or 30 of years in your career, right? So the fear, which I see is, is always prevalent in the minds of clients and especially the IT and the user community because they think, oh, if we mark on this journey, what happens to us, right? I have been a great mainframe guy for 30 plus years, right? Mm-hmm. Is this going to get obsolete? And, and the, the idea and or the, or the mantra to make sure that this resistance does not come is total inclusion and eliminating the fear from the minds of people. If you really want to change, we are ready to reskill you. And if you are ready to be reskilled, you have a future in this whole uh, worldwide digitization, which is happening now. So I would say uh, that helps a lot. And, and when you are looking at the principles around what you want to do and how you want to go about digitization without making people feel that it's being pushed on them, mm-hmm. is make sure that your user or, or your client is the center of everything that you're trying to do. IT should be on the side. It should be a hub and spoke model. You should treat your data as an asset and you should not go, in my opinion, right? It can be a big bang approach or a small MVP led approach. But in my opinion, start with few departments, have proper standards, right? Create few central standard platforms, which will be uh, helping you to scale up faster find a balance between centralized and, and local hub, uh, hub and spoke model, and then act into your way into the future, right? Take small limble steps, two small POCs. And when you have learned how to crawl and how to walk, then start running. So uh, a, a cloud transformation journey or a digital transformation journey is not which will happen in like a matter of months. It might take a few years and the patience and the drive and the focus from all walks of the leadership the top management, the middle management, and the lower management, the senior management, everything has to be combined together. And that I would say would be a true transformation journey where everyone feels included and nobody feels left out or nobody feels like there's being shoved up on them. Mm-hmm. So you've just, you've just talked about um, happily adopting change um, with positive results and impact, basically having the customer or the client at the center of the change. Let's look at... Um, Cloud adoption specifically, am I right in saying that the, the, the skeptics and those that were slow to, uh, to cloud adoption were largely the banks and the banking sector, a whole sector, a whole industry sector. Why is this? <laughs> you will get me in trouble, Eri. Eh? <laughs> 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 uh, banking and financial services or the banking sector per se is one of the huge pillars in Cognizant, right? Uh, I would say almost 25 to 30% of uh, our revenue or our client base, uh, I would say almost all the top uh, banks in the world are clients, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I would say that, yes, they have been uh, a little in the past, a little slow in op- adopting to cloud. Uh, and the reason being so because of the, the great security and the mm-hmm. nature of the financial data that they hold, right? So it's it's tough for them to understand uh, and to appreciate what the power of cloud can bring to them. However, because of the security issues and the compliance issues and the data privacy issues, it's very difficult for them in the past, like four or five years back, to adopt on the cloud generally, trust the cloud, right? And and the, the security breaches and the leaks which happen. So I, I would say I don't blame them that they have been slow, but now with 
COVID coming in, we, we had, uh, I would say, offshore development centers or remote development centers or, or places which have been dedicated for a banking client or, or any other large client where we had people in, in hundreds and sometimes in thousands sitting within one facility, very secured and working on the programs or the data of the client in banking and finance sector. Mm -hmm. Now, with COVID, everything was closed. You can't go and work in those OVCs. And we had a large scramble of getting the laptops and the PCs to like 200,000 employees in India uh, in their own houses. And then they started working from there. And what would happen to the mentality of a banking client at that point? They are so scared about their data getting leaked. And that's where technology comes in and plays a hand. You need to give them the assurance. The technology has to prove that it's as secure as it can be. And working in an ODC, in a centralized physical security location versus working in a cloud location environment where you're sitting at home and still doing the same thing is not very different, but gives you the additional flexibility. And, and I think in the last, I would say, uh, not only in the COVID era, but at least in the last 18 to 24 months, I have seen a huge change in the banking and financial sector where most of the, the large banks have already embarked on their cloud journey and uh, adoption to the cloud. Mm -hmm. And they're going multi-cloud, hybrid cloud. They have a on-prem and uh, I would say uh, a cloud adoption journey where they're not relying only on one cloud, but the best of all worlds. Mm -hmm. And the reluctancy has gone. So they are they're working fast. And especially with the with the onboarding of fintech, right? Uh, COVID has been a, a boon in disguise for fintech industries. Yes, Lots of startups in that area, right? Uh, I would say 1.4 billion dollars pumped just in the last six or eight months uh, in funding for the, the fintech startups. More than 1,200 startups in the just last six months, right? So it's it's huge, and because of the fintech competition which is coming in, which is very agile, very nimble, cuts out the intermediaries. The banks really have to, to be given the, the bank for the buck or run for the money, and they are doing it now. So they are very fast adopting the cloud journey, the data transformation and digital transformation. Uh, and not only banking and financial sector, I would say uh, a little bit of the healthcare side and pharmaceutical side as well. There yeah. was a little reluctance in the past, but they have also picked up uh, the cloud adoption very fast. But all the other industries like retail, consumer goods, manufacturing, logistics, where uh, the issue of data privacy and the issue of, um, I would say, security of data or leakage of data is not so high, the yeah. adoption has been much better and much faster. And they're a little ahead in the curve. So, so effectively, they've just been naturally very cautious because of the nature of the operations and one the way they do business. So, so that's that's kind of sensible, I suppose. Um, let's let's look at blockchains. Um, its uses go far beyond virtual money. Um, the, the technology could change the way that uh, privacy, ownerships, and, and collaborations are conceived in the digital world, disrupting sectors and and modifying practices as diverse as the financial markets which we just talked about, content distribution, supply chain, and election voting, for instance. What are you seeing, predicting, will be some of its uses going forward? What should we be cautious about with the evolution of um, blockchain? And uh, how soon do you think we will see the death of cash globally, if at all? It's already happening in Sweden, I think. I believe 80% of the, the transactions are now done digitally, and by 2023, all transactions will be cashless. First blockchain, and um, where's it going, Vic? Oh, that's a, a brilliant segue. Uh, I love uh, that area. I think, uh, Aline, blockchain is something which is as fundamental as the internet boom in the 90s. Uh, I would say it has the potential to change our lives. 
uh, in the next 25 years in similar ways that the internet revolution has done in the last 25, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a bright future. Uh, see, it gives you the vision of a single universal ledger in real time, mm -hmm. protected by the best cryptography algorithms which are around and available. Extremely difficult to hack. So it's very super secure, right? Yeah. Now it is actually changing the concept of trust to distributed trust versus centralized trust. Yeah. And it is built on joint consensus. And nowadays, most blockchain have features of smart contracts. Nick Sabo developed it some time back and, and it's, it's wonderful. It's a build-in logic to track, trigger any new event automatically. And whenever an event happens, which is very useful for a business application and traceability plus lineage uh, or provenance, as you call it, mm -hmm. a full automation is possible without human intervention and eliminating any room for errors at almost a fraction of the cost. But then if you look at uh, the Moore's law, which is my favorite, uh, which states that the numbers of transistors on a chip doubles almost every two years. And that is what gives it an exponential hockey stick growth. Mm -hmm. But then you see it cannot be infinite, right? There has to be a threshold yes. because no one single person owns the chain or the blockchain. And to maintain this blockchain, you require resources, electricity, computing, uh, power, time, money. And therein comes the cryptocurrencies, which is the incentive to the guys who manage it. And we also call them miners. Mm -hmm. And of course, all the ones who did early start in that, they have made their millions already. Yeah. So you see, blockchain and cryptocurrency are related, but a causal relationship does not exist necessarily between them. Cryptocurrency is just a small function of the overall blockchain technology. Yeah. Now with the advancements in technology, computing power and cloud adoption, I believe blockchain is going to see a phenomenal growth. People say, oh, it was a hype and it has lived at hype, but no, I don't agree. I believe it's going to see a phenomenal growth. Any industry which requires fraud detection and prevention, traceability, lineage will benefit immensely like banking, finance, and insurance. Most of the middle brokerage, intermediaries, and the third party agents will cease to exist as money will be exchanged almost in real time across boundaries, across continents with least amount of what you call the so-called waste or the commission to the middle. Uh, this is evident as we're talking about with the rise in fintechs over the last few years mm -hmm. and a total addressable market of almost $2 trillion, which is now in the next 10 years, the overall addressable market becomes 10, 10 to $15 trillion. Mm -hmm. And that's more than the overall GDP of many countries. Now, most of the large banks have already embraced blockchain or are in the process to do so. I would say more than 90% have embraced it. it. It has got significant benefits to them because it reduces their infrastructure costs by as much as 30% or 50%. And it reduces their headcount by 10% or more. Same is the scenario in, I would say, healthcare, like just like in banking, mm -hmm. where in healthcare, multiple use cases are benefiting from blockchain. Uh, it has also good case uh, in, I would say, distributed agriculture, uh, supply chain management, uh, education, legal uh, governance and voting that you were talking about. It, yeah. it, there's no, no, there's no chance of fraud uh, and whatever happened in capital uh, a few weeks back uh, and many others, right? More active your data as well. Yes, yes. And, and a note of caution, as you said, right, to our audience, yeah. uh, blockchain is not a magic potion that will transform everything. 
the huge computational power requirements need a large array of multiple machines, electricity, and generate a lot of heat, which is, I would say, bad for the climate change and global warming. Mm -hmm. so, so at least till the time we are still partially dependent on fossil fuels, mm -hmm. it may be a balancing act in a developing or a, a third world country, whether to develop or leverage the energy that they have to light up a school or a hospital or a house or use it for blockchain computing, right? So they have to make a choice. Also, our, our audience should be aware of the frauds and loads of fake cryptocurrencies that are out there. There was a $15 billion debacle and then there was a $1.5 million which was just in one day with a fake cryptocurrency coming in. Uh, I don't want to name the lady, but there was a lady who did that like 10 months back and she got away with it, right? So mm -hmm. uh, another area of caution would be uh, DeFi, uh, which is the decentralized finance apps. Uh, it could be a bubble uh, and it can, it can cause money to be lost by people who are naive and who are new to blockchain. Mm -hmm. So that would be my caution to our, our audience, our, our listeners. Uh, but however, in the next 50 to 75 years, and I'm giving it a large time frame, as I said, what, uh, what internet did to, for us in the last 25, blockchain will do in the next 25. But I'm giving it a little more time. I'm saying in the next 50 to 75 years, I would say by the beginning of, say, next century, in my opinion, blockchain has the potential and the promise to be right at the center of most industries, especially fintech. And as you rightly said, make the use of cash totally exist as we know it currently. Mm. And blockchain promises to solve two major problems that the internet could not solve for us. Problem number one, the trust problem, mm -hmm. because it's a shared trust rather than being trusting on one person or yes. one society. And the second problem, which is the intermediation problem. And if both these problems are solved, it brings in the back the, I would say the true honest peer-to-peer -peer economy. So I am very excited about the advancements in blockchain. I see it as having a great future, but again, caution, uh, don't dive in and don't Put in your money, your hard-earned cash, unless you understand it well and have done some research. Thank you for that, um, Vic. Um, I, and it's pretty comprehensive. And I'd really like at some point, maybe later in the year, just have an episode with you purely about blockchain. And let's dissect and talk further about that because that was actually sure. fascinating. Sure. So thank you for that. But let, let's move on because, you know, we have a finite time. Um, let's talk about something that everybody would like to be versed on. Um, that's the monetization of data. But let's look specifically in industry. How does an organization change the data that they have from being something that is just there to something that not only becomes an asset, but they can monetize it? What needs to be in place? What are the steps that you would advise or recommend to such organizations? Sure. Uh, see, uh, I'm a part of, uh digital business within Cognizant and it's pre predominantly uh, data analytics, AI, ML, cloud, right? Those are the areas. And I talked to so many clients who have got a huge amount of data lying around. But frankly, as you rightly said, Aline, they're not treating data as their asset. They're treating data as a commodity. And when you treat data as a commodity, you don't leverage it. Then it is a cost center to you rather than a profit mm -hmm. center. And the thought process, the, the psychology, the philosophy has to change. Organizations need to start treating that data as an asset and then get insights out of it, drive predictions out of it, 
and then increase what they can do for the next big action, which, which is in sales or any industry has to sell at the end of the day, whether it is banking or finance or healthcare or life sciences or manufacturing or consumer goods, everybody has to sell. The way in which we sell can be a little different. But if you start leveraging the existing data that you have to enhance your sales process, mm-hmm. cut down the cost, make sure that you're going very fast in the overall sales cycles or the omni-channel presence that you want to define or the hyper-personalization that you want to define. It's all possible because the data is there. So the, my main message to, to companies would be leverage your data. And when you start building upon uh, the legacy systems that you have, you need to do uh, uh, data modernization, or I would say the infrastructure modernization. And that's how you start monetizing your data. So when you start building up a new, I would say, a complete platform or the new foundation of your company, mm-hmm. I would say, look at open source, three or four things that I'll tell uh, our clients or in our audience would be, look at open source capabilities because it's very, very fast evolving area. So you don't have to get tied in with some different amount or one particular amount of code or software out there. Look at open source software. That helps you a lot. Look at multi-cloud. Because if you have a multi-cloud environment, then you're using best of all worlds. Mm-hmm. When you create your foundation, I would say keep AI and machine learning in mind. You want a platform which has got built-in capabilities of data ingestion, data assimilation, data storage, data analysis, artificial intelligence, machine learning, training of data, monster data management, and then getting pure insights and predictions out of it, right? So you can't make them all in silos that I have a data ingestion here, I have a storage here, I'm doing something else or X in analytics and reporting, and then I'll put in and throw in some AI ML. If, If you do that, then you will not have real synergies. So when I talk to clients and when we, when we do multiple huge transformations for our clients across industries, right? Mm -hmm. I always tell them, build your platforms with multi-cloud, open source, AI ML in mind, and have a hybrid stack structure. If you have a hybrid stack architecture and structure, then in that case, you're flexible, you're nimble, you're agile. You can bring in whatever you want and you can get the best of all worlds. Mm -hmm. You can leverage course like say for example consolidated data platforms or you can use built-in support like spark or say for example people have data warehouses uh, and then people have data lakes you can have delta lakes you can have lake houses uh, some of the, the key partners with whom i work and we work today they have lake house which has got built-in support for spark right and and it's awesome uh, you can get everything in one single consolidated platform some of the other partners with whom we work, which went IPO public and was the biggest IPO, I would say one of the biggest IPOs of 2020, uh, they have revolutionized the way in which the complete data warehousing can be done entirely on the cloud mm-hmm. with a fraction of the cost of what you used to have at on-prem. And there is no lock-in to one of the, the cloud providers. You can work with Microsoft Azure, you can work with Google Cloud, or you can work with AWS, or you can be work with some other cloud if you want to, or you can have a, a hybrid of on-prem and cloud, right? So I would say if if organizations start leveraging all of these principles and, and few of the suggestions that I mentioned, they will be able to monetize their data very quickly. And one last point I'd like to add to that, uh, that topic would be, make sure you have good security. 
because if you don't invest in good architects who are uh, i would say security architects who are looking at your itsm the overall journey the physical security but also your online security software security and uh, i would say the pii security if you bring in the security element and then look at data quality because data quality and consistency is paramount for next generation of architecture to breed and thrive so those would be some of my uh, thoughts and suggestions to our clients and audience who want to really monetize their data because it is there why not use it invest some money in it mm-hmm. and it will give you a lot of roi you can really monetize your data and everyone can do it so that would be my suggestion but mm-hmm. it's a very interesting topic it's it is deep thanks for that and i think um hybrid um was the word of last year and i think hybrid is going to be going forward in terms of the word that's going to be used and what's going to be used at that time um i want to move on to a, an interesting topic i'm i'm looking forward to your answer on this one i'm really, so i'd really like to sit back and for you to tell me and my listeners all about this it's about the new social media craze and perhaps it's more than a craze and it's something that industry should watch and look at how this can benefit and perhaps add value to their offerings the audio voice technology is it making a comeback especially in the, the the social networking space is this the next evolution of social media apps such as clubhouse how will this new direction voice audio apps instead of these sort of image and text apps facebook and instagram of this world disrupt and be utilized in businesses to their benefit can you see where this trend is going can you predict where this trend is going big oh oh yeah this is this is i i am a, a big fan of voice technology so uh, last month i was doing uh, a conversational ai and uh, and a and a chatbot session where i was talking to like i don't know maybe 2000 3000 online listeners mm-hmm. and this topic did come up so this is one of the topics which is like uh, very very fast and it's as you rightly said alain it is to watch out for yeah. but i would say apps like say for example you mentioned clubhouse uh, and i'll go with that they still are uh, uh, restricted not fully public and they would still have like you need to be invited you can go and register yourself download the app and then you're on a waiting list till mm-hmm. you get accepted or someone who is already inside uh, has to invite you so that you are there mm-hmm. now you need to be very careful in such uh, scenarios because there might be someone who would offer to invite you in but then they are trying to get your personal information in mm-hmm. exchange of an invite so they might ask you for your uh, pii data or your username or say for example email id or phone number right and then you need to be really careful whether you want to share it or not mm-hmm. but once trusted right it has got its pros and cons once you are in in an app like clubhouse so there are many others uh, which are coming up and uh, there's a lot of money which is being pumped into that 15 million or i would say even mm-hmm. more uh, in clubhouse which has been already pumped uh, and uh, it's uh, already active there are many users which are already using it mm-hmm. but once you are inside the app and if the trust is already there the same thing which i was talking about blockchain right mm-hmm. if the trust is already there it serves as a huge platform for the small and medium businesses because you can have your own rooms you can eavesdrop on other people's room you can join in conversations you can become more visible by by starting your own forums or your own rooms and it's all audio it's all voice so you can record something and tell alexa or siri or whoever is your uh, partner of choice in crime 
just to make sure that they start uh, repetitively broadcasting your messages, which is already recorded after every period of time. You can pay, pay an X amount of time frame and then you can, uh, okay, let me come out from not being so technical about it, right? But there is a huge amount of, I would say, uh, opportunity for small businesses, especially because you get a chance to do telemarketing, teleshopping, uh, and make your voice heard. And there's always a market for boutique vendors. There's always. But the boutique vendors don't get a chance to go out and advertise. Say, for example, a mom and pop shop, which have started dying in the last 50, 60 years. But look at the mom and pop shop in third world countries. Look at mom and pop shop in Italy, which still does not let it die. Or say, for example, uh, Spain, right? Uh, in US, we see in North America, most of the, uh, the big retailers and giants coming in, right? So less mom and shop shops. But if you go into, like, say, for example, uh, uh, small cities, right, you'll still find bakeries, you'll still find restaurants, you'll still find uh, a traditional uh, joint which sells goods or, say, flowers, right? Now, they lack the infrastructure and they lack the, the willingness and uh, the power to go out and advertise themselves. Now, if they are on an app like Clubhouse, they already know at least 1,500 or 2,000 customers, which they are their favorite customers or who always come and buy their pastries or cakes or whatever they are selling from their shop, right? Mm -hmm. And by word of mouth, it has increased. But just imagine if they are now on an app like Clubhouse, they have their own room and people know what's being offered. Mm -hmm. So that 1,500 can multiply within a week's time to 10,000. And now if you link e-commerce with it which is which i'm pretty sure is what the case going to be then you can start selling directly from the app like clubhouse you can make e-commerce you can make e-trades happen within the app but then again a little bit of caution because till the security part of it yeah. and the trust part of it is established yeah. you don't know where it will go right but i would say it's a good break in voice technology and apps like Clubhouse are going to really flourish. So I would put my money there, yes. Uh, yeah, and I think, I think security side, assuming that it's sorted, don't you think it will, it will really modify advertising, not just in small businesses, but perhaps in big businesses? I mean, Clubhouse is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but I just think the way this, we're, we're, the direction we're moving, it will might modify how organizations advertise they will have i don't know they'll have their rooms if it's clubhouse or something i just imagine a, a total change in the way we, we, we've done things beforehand in, in in terms of with just imagery and text and i just it's i think it's quite exciting i just think oh yes oh yes absolutely uh, it's very exciting uh, if if their shares come out i'm going to put my money in absolutely <laughs> And I'll be second <laughs> to put my money on it as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, let, let's get back to data. Let's get back to data. Um, but this time with customer experience, it, it, it's not just about having the data, understanding the data, using the data, or what we talked about, monetizing the data. It's a combination of all of that with the speed in which you use it, surely. How are organizations missing a trick? Can you give us examples of where and how they are failing, where an organization is succeeding in enhancing the customer's experience with their management of the data? That's, that's a brilliant question. See, uh, data monetization we talked about, we talked about uh, the digital trends and digital transformation, but this is one of the salient things, and I'm glad that you brought this up. This is one of the things which people miss out on. 
because what happens is that you might have the applications within the organization you might have the technology within your organization mm. to analyze the data and check the data out and do some insights but the most important part that you you asked in, in your question Aline is the speed of data usage and I think that's the deal breaker or maker because traditionally uh, till you get all the data analyze it uh, make some decisions out of it and give those insights to the person who is actually front-ending and is the person who is or the the associate who is going to enhance your customer experience it might be three to four days time that much time is gone if you really want good customer experience then in that case you need to have data almost in real time yes so thankfully with the, the the advancements in technology with this with the compute power and storage power all going up storage becoming cheaper and computation getting like fabricated out and decentralized this is totally possible now you can have hyper personalization which is very important everyone wants to to be talked about right so if you if i start talking about you or you start talking about me and we talk about good things things we like and then things which we might suggest you might like it's a good way of selling and that's hyper personalization you need to make sure your offer is curtailed and customized in the way that your customer likes it and you need to know their taste choice demographics past buying behaviors their financial condition what they might want to buy what they might not want to buy mm -hmm. and this is all data now just imagine if this could be all done in real time yeah oh, goodness if a customer comes into your store and you're trying to sell a mobile phone to them or a cell phone to them or if you're trying to sell them a car just imagine if you had all the data about the mm -hmm. customer and knew what the customer's choice was, where the customer wanted a family SUV or the customer wanted something which was small and did not have enough money, mm -hmm. or whether the customer was buying something for his or her daughter or son who was going to college for the first time, mm -hmm. or whether the customer is trying to buy something which is high-end Ferraris and McLarens. Mm -hmm. We don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the piece which helps because you don't want to go and trying to sell a Ferrari to a customer who is not financially adequately uh, having enough money to buy that Ferrari, right? So your pitch is wrong. You're, you are wasting your breath of marketing and campaigning on a customer, which is not your target audience. Mm -hmm. And if it becomes real time, you walk in the store and your demographics are known, your tastes are known, then you can hyper-personalize. So I would say, if you really want to enhance your customer experience, you need to lead with the customer in center, look at the things which the customer wants or sees as a necessity, mm -hmm. and then have the humbleness if something goes wrong, because it's it's on omni-channel, omni-presence as of now. You can buy something online, you might want to come back and return it in the store, or you might return it somewhere else. Yeah. The idea would be, if I have to succeed in customer experiences, if something goes wrong, and your data tells that something has gone wrong, how soon can you take a, a corrective action on it? Like say, for example, like uh, I would say one and a half, two years back in a major basketball, baseball game, I will not name the game or the player, one of the player's shoes ripped open. And, and that was like a disaster because that was bad brand image for the company, which was a huge human factor, one of the top three. Mm -hmm. And it was not good for a player of that stature, right? Mm -hmm. But then they immediately corrected it. 
they made sure that the, the situation is resolved, is totally addressed, and they went back and corrected everything on, on that particular brand of the player's apparel that they were talking about. So instead of losing out a billion dollars, on the first day, they lost a billion dollars. But instead of losing out, in seven days' time, they were able to reverse that trend and make $2.5 billion extra on top just because of that mistake that had happened. So mistakes happen. We are all human. The idea is, if a mistake happens, do you recognize it? Do you take action on it? And the most important thing which helps you do this is your data. If your data does not inform you, a CXO in a company will not know what is happening until he has or she has the data to take an action on. So the speed at which you use the data to do analytics and to make decisions is very, very important. And uh, I would say that's a, a, a great point which each and every organization should look at. So, so great question. Yes, so uh, I suppose it's like the customer have a short memory on faults depending on how you rectify it, but they will have a long memory on how you rectify it pretty much. So, yes, yes, everyone remembers how you treated them. Yes, yes, yes indeed. Yes. Okay, um, yes, let's move on to the next question, but answer that briefly because the question after that I want you to spend a bit of time on. So um, the next question is about virtual meeting providers such as Zoom, Microsoft Teams, etc. Um, how are these providers of virtual working and communication services expanding and enhancing their service offering to meet the needs of corporations such that, for example, these corporations feel there is minuscule difference between the virtual and the old physical gatherings. What improvements have been made in the last year, do you think? And what do you see happening in this space in say three to five years? Oh yes, that's that's one thing, Aline, that that has been a, a life savior for all of us, I would say. Yes, right? indeed. If this advancement did not happen, we would have all been crippled, right? But <laughs> uh, what, what I would say, uh, in the last year or so, huge advancements, huge mm, advancements. Mm. Uh, we work with almost all of the top plat platforms and providers, right? Zoom, Teams, uh, WebEx, and yeah. many others, right? Uh, Google uh, and many others. N now, the point is each and every one of them are trying to ensure that they have as much uh, normalcy or uh, the minimum gap, which is possible between a virtual and a physical gathering. But all of us know that's not entirely possible. The, the, the aura of when you're sitting in a boardroom and you see you yeah. walking in is different. That can't be captured by Zoom or Slack or by, by Teams or by WebEx, right? Or any of the providers, right? Or any virtual meeting providers. It cannot be captured. Uh, the way in which someone talks, the expressions, when you are sitting in a boardroom and or in a meeting room and talking to 20 people, their body language. However, the virtual providers or the meeting providers have enhanced it. So now you can have more than 20, 25, 30, sometimes 50 or 100 participants, and you can see a video feed of each one of them. Mm -hmm. and, and the way in which, if you really set it up well, the person who is speaking comes on and you know what is the facial expression. What you lack at that point of time is what is the reaction of other people yeah. on the points that the person is making, right? So you can go back to the overall view where you see everything. So it doesn't give you the exact, uh, I would say, observation points that a physical meeting would give, but there have been advancements. And I would say at least it provides 
80 to 90% of the necessity uh, that we need to keep working and uh, keep mm-hmm. surviving during these pandemic times when we can't meet in person. Uh, it doesn't, uh, when, when we go back also, say for example, post-COVID, I would see if we'll still see a lot of users because if there are people who had to travel just for the sake of traveling and being in person, yes. they might not have to do so because they can still use these virtual forums. Now, I would suggest still that if there is a person whom you have never met and it is the first time you're meeting, then a physical uh, interaction creates the bond, right? It creates yeah. that that familiarity, that, that trust, that uh, rapport. Mm-hmm. However, if you have met a person already, right? Uh, I don't see any need to actually go physically in the meeting because you know the person, you know him or her, and they know you and the trust has already been formed. Mm-hmm. So most of the meetings can be done over a, a, a virtual forum, a, a virtual meeting provider. And, and that saves a lot of time, money, brings in efficiencies. It will become totally integrated. So there is a lot of advancements which is happening in, in again, uh, the, the contact lenses technology. That is one of the areas that I was uh, seeing one of our clients do. Uh, so mm-hmm. in contact lens technology, you, you will have the power to blink and change setups you will have maybe a glass or a spectacle which you're wearing on your eyes, which can be used to regulate your meetings. You already have integrated Alexa and earphones or series with which you can coordinate meetings. So in five years time, it would be like, okay, it's it's normal. You might be golfing out there while actually taking a meeting or you might be driving and the meeting is still happening and you don't have any distractions because there will be driverless cars and autonomous driving cars, right? So uh, with these uh, virtual uh, meeting providers coming into picture, I would say the future is going to be very, very different. You might see something like a sci-fi movie in 10 years time, but but... I am really appreciative of what these virtual meeting providers has done for us, right? In the last one year, they have been a lifesaver. It's been, a, it's been an absolute lifesaver. And I, yes. maybe because, I don't know, I've got a wild imagination, but I almost sort of imagine that if you have a meeting, for instance, you have a meeting with 12 people and you can't physically be present, there'll almost be a, a virtual avatar created, you know, like with the Oculus that you can have, have you'll have a virtual meeting room and you'll be there as, and, and if someone is talking, you don't have to necessarily concentrated then you can look around or your avatar can look around and you can somehow see the expressions i don't know uh, oh yes oh yes, yes I'm, I'm right. I like yeah i did not touch upon that you are right with the advancements in ar vr technology you can yes. wear glasses and then you can be virtually there your yes. avatar can be created and people can see you in person uh, live yes. right actually yes. and that's a big one right because just imagine the events which used to happen for large corporations, mm-hmm. right? Say, for example, AWS reInvent or Google yeah. Next or Microsoft Ignite, Inspire, SAP Sapphire, all those large events, right? People are not able to go and see people in person. Yeah. But if the avatar is there and you can play it in your living room in 10 years' time mm-hmm. and it all becomes like what we used to see in Star Trek or, <laughs> or Matrix, right? That, 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 that's the future and that will happen. I, so we imagine, as you mentioned, you'd be sitting there in your driverless car and you'd be having a meeting with someone that's in London and you'd be sitting in the room talking with them, you know, in your your avatar VR space. And I just think that's what's going to happen. I really do believe that's what's going to happen in that sense. Yes, they will be sitting next, right next, their their hologram will be sitting next to me in my passenger seat and I'll be sitting next to them in their passenger seat in London. That is is awesome. That's such a 
fantastic I idea. I think if anybody comes up with that, you and I will be buying shares in that, won't we again? <laughs> <laughs> I've already invested heavily in that area. I will invest more. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's end. Let's end on this question. And um, but it's a, it's a very serious question. Let's end on it. And I want to talk about AI and the. Let's face it. The obsolescence of the the human role with the advent of AI. It was a classic example that you you actually gave Vic um, with a doctor viewing data on a specific issue with a patient. He or she will have probably seen um, a couple thousand examples of this in their lifetime and use their knowledge to provide a diagnosis. Good, right? But AI, on the other hand, will have a couple million examples of this at its disposal in order to provide a diagnosis. Let's be frank here. How does a human compete with that? It's impossible. How are you ensuring that human intervention remains relevant and important? Who will benefit the most from this? What say you, Vic? Oh, this is this is a subject which I am so much in passion with. This is this is the future, right? Yeah. So I would say it's a balancing act. If you if you talk to great leaders, they all have their different viewpoints. Some of them think of it as Skynet and uh, Terminator 3, Terminator 4, Terminator 5. That's also <laughs> there. Yeah. And uh, some others have got more positive and optimistic viewpoints. But yes, it's totally possible that with artificial intelligence, creating artificial intelligence on its own, it might lead, it might, it might lead to a possibility where it goes out of control. However, that is not. I would say happening in the next 50 to 100 years. That will take some time, some evolution. Hmm. But any point of time, whenever a business decision is made, uh, at least from my perspective, it is a combined, I would say, activity with AI helping the humans and then humans taking a decision and then both of them combining together to execute it. That's how I would say that the humans can keep relevant. You can't compete with an AI or a machine learning or a robot mm -hmm. if you have to go underwater and drill a trench to lay out fiber optics between two continents. You can't compete there. Let AI do it for you. Mm -hmm. Or if you have to go out in the cold of a, a solar space station and walk in the space without any protective gear and join the space hub or uh, the space docking station to each other, you can't do it, right? Let a robot or AI ML induced uh, equipment do it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, or say for example, the, the breaches which happen in nuclear reactors, right? Uh, there's contamination, there's radiation level, which is very high, and you can't go down and seal the nuclear reactor. You need something which is equipped with artificial intelligence, machine learning can mm -hmm. make the quick decisions on the fly and go and go and do that work for you, right? So the, the idea is to leverage AI where humans are weak, to leverage robotics where humans have a, a finite capability. You can bring and build on infinite capabilities in a robot or an AI ML. However, don't let the AI decide things for you. If it is, a, 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 say for example, a robotics process automation, an RPA or an IPA, where it's in a mundane task and the same task is repetitive, let AI come and solve that for you. Mm -hmm. However, if it is, as you gave the example of what I talked about in one of my earlier sessions somewhere, uh, if say, for example, it's a doctor looking at charts and uh, examining x-rays or brain scans, yeah. and if an AI is also involved, it might give you a diagnosis, but the final 
action, I would say, because you have to have a real bit of emotion also combined with the analysis which comes from an AI or machine learning. So you need to look at it and see whether it is the right decision to take. Will it be the right thing to do? Because uh, AI or machine learning will, will, will work on programs or logic that we have written. It might not have the emotional ability, not at least as of now. It might not feel pain or emotions or happiness as of now. It might feel in the next 500 years, but as of now, they don't. Until that point of time, I would say human beings are right at the center to augment and take help of AI to make their daily lives better, uh, to really, uh, uh, I would say, be more relevant and important. Do get AI and ML to do things which we cannot do today. However, not let AI take a step ahead of us. And uh, the second part of your question around where do I see adopters and uh, who will benefit the most? I would say most of the early adopters in AI ML have been uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, uh, we were talking to one of our large uh, pharma clients who were trying to do genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. And if you are doing genome sequencing, there are multiple permutations and combinations which you need to try out or a, or a molecule which you need to try out. And if you actually tried out, say, for example, one and a half million molecules and change and try the efficacy of it, that means you have to do it physically, manually. That takes time, money, effort, resources. However, if you did predictive modeling on top of that and used uh, uh, multiple technologies, which are AI on AI, like Sentient or Leaf, uh, mm -hmm. a couple of uh, technologies that we leverage within Cognizant, if you use such kind of technologies, you don't actually need to physically go and create those scenarios. You can create those probabilistic algorithms, you can do predictions, and then instead of running 1.5 million cases, you might only narrow it down to say, for example, a couple of thousand. That drastically improves and brings down the overall cost and timelines. So I would say in the um, advancements in, in Personalized drugs or personalized medicines, it's going to be a huge success. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, finding out genome sequencing, creating organs which have failed uh, for, say, a human, right? A replication of a DNA or cloning of a DNA from uh, another mammal for what a human being can use. And those are rapidly increasing. But now instead of actually doing it and learning it uh, by creating mistakes and let mistake happen, you can eliminate the mistake by modeling it out using AIM. So I say it's very, very promising. A lot of focus has to be built on AI and ML, but then you need to make sure it's in check and balance. And you always have a human being on top of an AI ML and not the other way around. Fascinating, really fascinating. I really could talk some more on this, but I'm conscious of the time. Absolutely fascinating episode of Heads Talk. Um, I know we will talk again later in the year, in the meantime, Vic Kumar, many thanks for your time and insight. Thank you so much, Aline, and thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you and the whole audience. Thank you, audience. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you, for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals.
Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.